0: In light of the U.S. Constitution, how should we think about current government measures related to COVID-19? And how should we think about potential government responses to social media, such as Twitter? This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, episode 15. Welcome. Hey, uh, I want to dive right into content, but first, two disclaimers. Firstly, I am interested in constitutional law, but I am not an expert and I don't want to pretend to be. Please don't go to court using what I'm about to share as the basis of your argument. Talk to real lawyers and actually know what you're thinking about. But I don't think that should stop us and me from uh, thinking about these things, chatting about these things, and trying to think well about these things. Secondly. This episode will be a bit in the weeds or academic, but if you, like me, are interested in liberty for citizens of the United States, I hope this is helpful and engaging, even if you disagree with me. We are in the midst of a very strange year. 2020 has uh, carried many things. Uh, I'm sure, you know, personally, we've all been through various things, but certainly as a people, uh, the COVID-19 public health uh issues and then the related governmental responses to those. And I want to specifically talk about those responses, COVID related responses in New York State where I live. Governor Cuomo uh well the the legislature in March actually passed a law that essentially gave him monarchical power regarding COVID related restrictions. Um and as long as you know his his uh his edicts or, or directives can only last for a month, but what he's done since March is just every month he issues an update to his executive order. So literally it's executive order 202, and it's on like sub-issuing like 75 at this point because just every time he adds something, he just uh, kind of amends the, the, or continues the executive order and adds some details or changes some details, but essentially he can do whatever, whatever he wants. And the power for governors to um, declare disaster emergencies and uh, make, you know, to give directives related to them can be useful in the midst of crises where hours matter. But when it comes to COVID-19, although certainly it was a bit scary for many, and there were lots of question marks in March, Hours turn to days, to weeks, to months, to many months, and the legislature still uh, has left the, the power in the hands of Cuomo uh, unilaterally. And so I really think it is, it, it is high time, way past time that the legislature reclaim that. They rescind the March order and they begin, through the legislative process, passing some laws related to COVID-19. But furthermore, I have problems with the current measures. Even if these, every specific measure had been passed by the legislature in Albany, I still find aspects of several of these to be unconstitutional. Um, and that's what I'm going to focus on today in this episode. But, but I would add even more, if all of these measures were constitutional, I still find some troubling uh, and specifically alarming as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. Some of these restrictions seem to uh, inhibit or infringe upon basic Christian activities like hospitality and public gatherings for fellowship and worship. And I'm not claiming right now that they are prohibitive, although if there is another full lockdown and, and church gatherings are still considered non-essential, it might be prohibitive. But I, uh, even if it's inhibitive, that that's alarming to me um, and concerning, and uh, that's another discussion for another time. Right now, I want to focus on the constitutional, constitution and uh, constitutional constraints that might be brought to bear here. Um, the First Amendment of the United States Constitution says Congress shall make no law dot 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 abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Congress shall make no law abridging. And and abridging means to to restrict or curtail, to inhibit in some way, impede upon or affect. Now that statement is, it's simple, it's extreme. Uh, It seems like there are no exceptions, but of course, there are many laws that clearly restrict or curtail these liberties in various ways? How are any of them constitutional? Great question. It requires a little bit of backstory, and it falls under the big idea. Really, I would say it's heavily influenced by the idea of incorporation. And here's how that works. So uh, let's go back to the early 19th century, a case decided in 1833, Barron versus Baltimore. Uh, Barron was a co-owner of a once-profitable wharf, in Baltimore, they had an active harbor. And what had happened was some city expansion had, long story short, resulted in uh, making his wharf uh, lose its value because ships couldn't access it. Uh, they had messed with the depth of the harbor by dumping sand into the harbor. And so he was basically saying, hey, you messed with my property. I need compensation. The Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And although he still owned his wharf, he was basically saying, hey, your actions messed with this uh, public thoroughfare, uh, making my wharf uh, devaluing it. And so you, you stole value from me. You need to compensate me based on the Fifth Amendment. And what's significant about the case was they the, in the in the Supreme Court, when it got there, they didn't try to decide, is it truly the case that um, by messing with the depth of the depth of the harbor, they were uh, robbing some of the value of his war from them. They didn't even consider that because as they looked at it, they said the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply here because the Fifth Amendment was a constitutional amendment ratified along with the U.S. Constitution in 19 or 191789, and it was to restrict the relationship between the federal government and states or the federal government and citizens, not to impact or restrict or constrain the relationship between states or cities and their citizens. Does that make sense? So essentially, and this this is a fact, the U.S. Constitution was passed and we see things like you know, Congress shall make no law respecting uh, the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I don't have that in front of me, so I'm quoting it. Hopefully that was correct. When it comes to, to you know, religion and the freedom to worship that we understand today, at the time the U.S. Constitution was passed and the First Amendment was passed, there were multiple states who had official state churches that had even been partly funded via taxes on, on the general population. And it wasn't for at least a few decades that there were no state churches. And and so you see, there were actually things that very clearly violated the First Amendment, but they didn't because the First Amendment was not constraining Maryland or Massachusetts or Virginia, it was constraining the federal government and saying the United States government, the federal government will not make a law establishing religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It didn't apply to the states. But fast forward just a little bit, we have the Civil War. And uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, we have three amendments that are passed. The 13th ended slavery, and the 14th Amendment did a whole bunch of things. It's actually an amendment with multiple sections, quite long. But the, the very beginning, Section 1, was hugely significant then, and its far-reaching nature and continued significance has only uh, grown in our understanding over the past century, century and a half. Here's how Section 1 of the 14th Amendment goes. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws." Now, uh, these, these are some, similar to the First Amendment, these are some sweeping and extreme statements, but what's interesting is these are referring to the relationship between any state in the Union and its relationship to its citizens. And it's saying no state, not just the United States, but no state within the United States shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States. That right there is called the Privileges or Immunities Clause. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And then it's followed by the Due Process Clause. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And then it's followed by what's referred to as the Equal Protection Clause nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And what we'll find is when you start studying constitutional law, you'll start hear, hearing people throw around due process and privileges or immunities or equal protection frequently, and they're referencing this amendment. And the thing is, it, it's, saying, uh, it's, it's referencing things like privileges of citizens of the United States. What exactly are all those privileges? And like, like I said, the, the over the past century and a half, the court has recognized, oh, this is a privilege of a citizen of the United States that every state needs to recognize. This is a privilege. This is a privilege. The due process says, no, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What are the liberties that can't be d- deprived without due process? Uh, and and so it's pretty far reaching. If if you can't, it, uh, hopefully that makes sense. And in fact, to emphasize how much this is an ongoing process, most recently, just in t- 2010, um, there was another—oh, by the way, when, when it was recognized by the Supreme Court over 100 years ago that at some level the 14th Amendment it, it has these broad notions of privileges and of liberty— Rather than trying to exhaustively define what the privileges are, or what this liberty is, it's over time, and it ex- this explicitly began about 100 years ago, early 20th century, over time, specific rights have been incorporated into our understanding of this liberty or our understanding of these privileges. And again, that's, that's been happening even fairly recently. It was in McDonald versus Chicago in 2010, so 10 years ago that the Second Amendment was incorporated as part of this liberty. Um, In McDonald, uh, essentially, it was a guy named McDonald and a few other petitioners in Chicago who wanted to own handguns for self-defense, but laws prevented them from owning handguns, so they filed suit. And uh, here's a quotation from McDonald versus Chicago talking about the incorporation process and understanding that Uh, When there is a right that is deeply rooted in our history and tradition, it falls into that sense of this is a privilege or a liberty of American citizens. Here's the quotation. With this framework in mind, we now turn directly to the question whether the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms is incorporated in the concept of due process. Side note, that's the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which is liberty. Continuing, in answering that question, As just explained, we must decide whether the right to keep and bear arms is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty. Or, as we have said in a related context, whether this right is, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, end quote. And that's the excerpt from McDonald that I want to reference. But the point is, it, they decided it was, and just as recently as 10 years ago, the understanding of what the liberty that is incorporated to us and must be respected by our states and various um, sub-magistrates and s- civil authorities, what liberty is it that the 14th Amendment requires them to respect? Well, one is the right to bear, keep and bear arms. And it was incorporated as recently as 10 years ago. That's when the Supreme Court decided that. Now, this is great news for those who love liberty, because it's actually expanded uh, our understanding of liberty and the protections of liberty in the various states of this union over the past century. But it also creates an odd and difficult tension. Okay, so the First Amendment, take the the, the right to freedom of speech. The First Amendment says no law infringing upon and then no law abridging or basically the same thing. But there are lots of laws because that do infringe on our right to free speech. And and the court has recognized that states have a duty or interest in maintaining order and protecting citizens from others who might harm them. And so, for example, there are laws and I suspect every state, but certainly many states, it's common to find laws about obscenities in public. Um, you can't just walk up to somebody in the the park and start, uh, you know, cussing them out and saying all sorts of obscene things. They could call the cops on you for that. Like that's that you might be like, hey, I'm just talking. I have free speech. <laughs> like, well, not freedom to harass and be obscene. Um, you, furthermore, you could there are laws against harmful speech, things like libel and slander where it's difficult to prosecute someone under these because we have very robust protections for speech. But if someone can actually prove that you are purposefully lying about them to cause them injury, and it is injuring them, they can sue you for libel or slander. And the, the, this has been held up by the Supreme Court as, yeah, it does at some level abridge your freedom of speech, but it is a, there's a compelling governmental interest and a responsibility they have for for public order, and to protect citizens. And so there are spaces where laws can infringe upon free speech. And essentially, liberties are weighed against various compelling governmental interests. And when it comes to constitutional questions, there are three different standards for review. There's the rational basis scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and strict scrutiny. And rational basis just says like, hey, if there's some sort of law and it doesn't impact directly any fundamental right of Americans, um, the, the question is just, does the government have some sort of interest here? Is there actually a rational basis? You know, if they make some law and it's absolutely erroneous and just silly, like say they make a law that everyone must wear green shirts on June 1st. I'd be like, what? I mean, that, that's obviously like there's, there's not necessarily a, a, a specific right uh, about the color shirt you wear. Um, actually, that might be a bad example because telling you what to wear is kind of violating your basic personal freedom. Let's think of a different law. Let's say they make a law that when you go to the pu- public courthouse, you have to wear a green shirt. That's different than wear a green shirt in your own property when you go to court on June 1st, you have to wear a green shirt. And if, if, if there's any rational reason for the government to do that, it's like, okay, that's good. Um, and the burden of proof would be on the the plaintiff to, to show there's no reason for this law. And then it would get overturned in court. Intermediate scrutiny. And mm, you're going to have to, uh, Look into this yourself if you want to know specifically when it's applied. It's it's a little tricky. It's a slightly stronger standard where the burden of proof is on the state to prove that they have some sort of interest here. And it's, you know, as I've looked into it, like I said earlier in that disclaimer, I'm not an expert and I, I can't figure out exactly when. And I suppose that's actually even something that's debated before, like within lawsuits themselves. When exactly is the intermediate scrutiny standard used? And it seems like it's used when they are fundamental rights, but in a fairly mild intrusion way that seems to be very obviously equally affecting people. Not going to lie, as I've looked into that a little bit, I, I, I can't say for sure, but it's a standard that is used. I can confidently say that. Finally, strict scrutiny, and this one's pretty clear, when a law or action infringes upon what the court sees as a fundamental right, it holds that law or action by the government to a very strict standard called strict scrutiny, requiring the government to demonstrate both a compelling interest, like we really have to do this because of this fundamental responsibility of government, and the government has to demonstrate that the the law or the action is narrowly ta- tailored to actually accomplish that interest and it has to be done in order to accomplish that interest they're not just being uh, you know throwing broad strokes at things to to try to maybe solve the problem even if there might be a better way and the thing that one of the keys here is the burden of proof is on the state and so as we look at the 14th amendment i referenced this earlier but by way of review The 14th Amendment is loaded, and so it's useful to break it up into three clauses. Privileges or Immunities Clause, Due Process Clause, Equal Protection Clause. And I'll read the amendment again. Now that you have some sort of idea of these three clauses, it might make more sense. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. My, I would submit this, that for the state to infringe upon any basic right, and I believe the, the current responses to COVID-19 are infringing upon or, or uh, affecting or curtailing in some way, basic rights, I submit that they must at least demonstrate these infringements definitely work, are necessary, necessary in order to accomplish a uh, most compelling goal. And that the, like, and that, excuse me, let me separate that into two. They are necessary to accomplish the goal. Meaning, there aren't other ways to go about it. And that the goal is actually compelling. So that, that it's the, they have to demonstrate the infringement actually works. That it's necessary to accomplish the goal not just uh, one way of accomplishing it, and that the goal is actually compelling. And what's significant about that standard is that uh, when it comes to these current uh, government-related responses, there are appeals to good intentions, like, hey, they're just trying to decrease the number of cases. I'm like, well, is it actually decreasing the number of cases? Are there other ways to try to decrease the number of cases? Do they actually have to try to decrease the number of cases like so j- simply appealing to good intention is not enough uh, another thing is i've seen appeals to the example of other nations and certainly i'm not opposed to looking to the example of other nations but i am very hesitant the liberty that we enjoy in the united states is relatively unique on the global stage and relatively unique throughout human history. And I would be very careful, even when looking to American history, but especially when looking to the history or current example of other nations that don't have robust protections of liberties. Meaning when COVID-19 hit China, the Wuhan province last January, they did pretty intense lockdowns. Cool, I don't live in China. <laughs> um, I'm I'm not I'm not particularly interested in affirming lockdowns as a good approach because China did it because Italy did it believe it or not uh, although certainly Europe is relatively relatively free on you know within the, the context of world history. They, they enjoy far fewer freedoms than the United States. We really are in a, pr- a pretty unique position. So appeals to good intentions, appeals to the examples of other nations. And specifically, there's an appeal to a case that was decided about a hundred years ago. I can't remember the exact year, maybe like 19, it might've been like 1910-ish. So a little over a hundred years ago, but I can't remember off the top of my head. It was a case called Jacobson. And he lived in Massachusetts and there was a vaccine mandate regarding smallpox, and he was refusing to get it and sued, uh, basically claiming, hey, I've got freedoms, and this is violating my personal liberty. Uh, I think he made a decent case. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court decided against him, and certainly past precedent of the court is respected by the court today. But simply because a case was decided in the past, um, doesn't mean that the case court today might not modify or add some greater nuance and specificity or even outright overturn that case. They have done that at times, and they are fully capable of doing that at times. And very good news. Recently, there was a court case decided in western Pennsylvania by a judge named William Stickman IV, and it's now in, in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and I'm not sure how they'll decide, but then hopefully, hopefully, well, either way that the Third Circuit decides, I hope it gets to the United States Supreme Court, and hope, I hope they decide uh, in favor of uh, robust liberty. But in his decision, he made a couple of statements that I want to re- read that both uh, speak to the, uh, speak to the appeal to good intentions— and speak briefly to Jacobson. Okay, first, good intentions. Quote, After reviewing the record in this case, including numerous exhibits and witness testimony, the court believes that defendants undertook their actions in a well-intentioned effort to protect Pennsylvanians from the virus. However, good intentions towards a laudable end are not alone enough to uphold governmental action against a constitutional challenge. Indeed, the greatest threats to our system of constitutional liberties may arise when the ends are laudable, and the intent is good, especially in a time of emergency. In an emergency, even a vigilant public may let down its guard over its constitutional liberties only to find that liberties, once relinquished, are hard to recoup. And that restrictions, while expedient in the face of an emergency situation, may persist long after immediate danger has passed. End quote. That is awesome and informative. Again, there's there's often this sense of, hey, they're trying to do the right thing and this is an emergency situation. And Stickman observes, it's actually in the moments where people are doing it with good intentions, and it's in the midst of an emergency that liberties are very likely to be relinquished. Referencing Jacobson, quote, Jacobson was decided over a century ago. Since that time, there has been substantial development of federal constitutional law in the area of civil liberties. As a general matter, this development has seen a jurisprudential shift, whereby federal courts have given greater deference to considerations of individual liberties as weighed against the exercise of state police powers. That century of development has seen the creation of tiered levels of scrutiny for constitutional claims. They, they did not exist when Jacobson was decided. end quote. So again, that, that idea of distinct, distinct differentiating between uh, rational basis, intermediate and strict scru- levels of scrutinies, th- that process didn't exist when Jacobson was around. And so it's important to consider in light of another century of Supreme Court jurisprudence, uh, there's a recognition that uh, when impacting various civil liberties, different levels of scrutiny are applied. When it comes to fundamental constitutional liberties, it's strict scrutiny. The government, it can't just be said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. They're trying to reduce the spread of smallpox, smallpox the government has to show compelling interest and that their solution is narrowly ta- tailored. So what I want to do now is talk through some rights that have basis in constitutional law that these current government covid related related directives impact at some level. And the thing is for every one of these and for every directive that might impact that impact these rights. The burden is on the state to say, it this we have a compelling interest here and this is narrow, narrowly tailored. Like, we have to do this thing because it really works and there isn't another way. I don't think that's the case. Maybe a brief aside about COVID-19 for a moment. COVID-19 is a real virus. It is killing people. Um, I think anybody who's rational has known that pretty much from the get-go. It's also the case that it impacts different demographics disproportionately. Specifically, it's a pretty dangerous virus, it seems, for persons over 70, particularly if they have some comorbidities. But it's not really particularly dangerous at all, much less dangerous than the flu for young people who get it. Um, that's worth looking into. I'm not going to spend 10 minutes going through some numbers. You can look at the numbers. I, one, one problem I've observed in the past few months is we aren't particularly good at looking at statistics and large numbers when you hear tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in the context of the United States. Um, that's not nothing. It is significant, but it's also, it can sound massive, uh, but actually, Millions of people die in the United States every year. Uh, the question is, why and and who is it? Uh, not to say that some people don't matter, but when a 90-year-old with cancer dies, that isn't quite as alarming as when a 15-year-old with no health condition, known health conditions, dies. It's like, whoa, what happened here? Whereas you know, somebody who's aged and has some uh, major sicknesses, it's sad, but it's also not particularly. Uh, disconcerting or or need for some sort of massive public public policy change. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so in light of that, ooh, and I should also add, the United States has certainly faced health crises before. One of the things that the judge in the case in Pennsylvania, which was uh, County of Butler versus Wolf, one of the things he did was he noted that The breadth and the length of the responses in this case are unparalleled in United States history. We've certainly faced health crises before. Um, In the 1918 flu uh, pandemic, there were some lockdowns. They were more localized, not statewide, and they were much briefer. Um, The lockdowns where they did happen lasted for about a month. I, th- I believe it was like November into December 1918. And so uh, it was much l- less invasive, shorter in duration, and in response to a more significant pandemic. Um, and and so that that is worth observing. Okay, some rights. Firstly, we have a right to work. We have a right to work. And that was uh, in 1897, actually, there was a, a Supreme Court case, Alec Alec, Algeier versus Louisiana. And in this case, um, they note that liberty, as mentioned this amendment, includes a right to to many things. And one of those is to live and to work and to earn a livelihood by any lawful calling. And and there's a sense, again, it's liberty doesn't mean you're guaranteed a job, but it means you have the the freedom to pursue work and to work hard and to try to make a living in the market. Um, here's the quotation from Alger v. Louisiana. The liberty mentioned in that amendment means not only the right of the citizen to be free from the mere physical restraint of his person as by incarceration, but the term is deemed to embrace the right of the citizen to be free in the enjoyment of all his faculties, to be free to use them in all lawful ways, to live and work where he will, to earn his livelihood by any lawful calling, to pursue any livelihood or avocation, and for that purpose to enter into all contracts which may be proper, necessary, and essential to his carrying out, to a successful conclusion, the purposes above mentioned. And one of the things we saw with the response to COVID-19 was very broad brush lockdowns and entirely shutting down any sort of in-person work if it was considered non-essential. The right to work is a constitutional right recognized by the Supreme Court for over a hundred years. And all of a sudden, in when did the lockdown go into effect? End of March through maybe early May in parts of New York, people were able to start going back to work. For some people, it was another month or two. All of a sudden, there's this very broad brush. And and again, one of the the aspects of strict scrutiny is, is this narrowly tailored? Um, So one thing the government has to establish is that somehow COVID-19 is a unique threat, unparalleled in American history, because the response is greater and and broader and longer than any in American history. They have to somehow show that COVID-19 is this unparalleled, threat and there's a, a massive, compelling governmental interest that would allow it to violate personal freedoms, fundamental liberties guaranteed in the 14th Amendment, one being the right to work. And furthermore, not only does it have to demonstrate COVID-19 is really that serious, but it has to show that this law, the lockdown of non-essential businesses, was narrowly tailored, that uh, it was, it's actually effective, that it's needed to, you know, to, uh, for, for the sake of public health, and there aren't other ways to go about, to go about helping reduce the spread of COVID-19. Um, the response was somewhat off the cuff. If you remember back to March, it was pretty, uh, it was kind of shooting from the hip. I, I don't know if there's any way to, to demonstrate definitively that it actually help slow spread. Um, We'll get into a moment, the differentiation between essential and non-essential, but it's, again, when there's a fundamental liberty to work, to look at somebody and say like, oh, hey, you're at a grocery store, so you can keep working. But hey, all you do is, I don't know, manufacture shoes. You can't go into work. It's like, "Hey, hey, buddy, maybe from your perspective, you just got a new pair of shoes last month and shoes are no longer very essential. But for me, Working at making shoes is an essential liberty because I need to work a job. I want to contribute to the economy. I want to, now I don't, again, we don't have a right to a specific job, but you have a right to pursue work and to to try to work. And what the state did was with a broad brush, they said, nope, can't go to work for the next few months. Um, another liberty that's been recognized by the court, the right to travel. And this is part of the uh, privileges and privileges or immunities clause, that there's a a privilege that we have as citizens in the United States. And you could also say it's part of the due process. We have a liberty, a liberty to freely travel within our state and actually to freely travel between states in the United States. And some of the directives with COVID-19 were some states, I believe, actually prohibited travel except for essential activities. I cannot remember if New York did that or not. It is a little confusing to stay on top of various state response. But certainly one thing New York has done is it's it's infringed upon or abridged the right to freely travel between states. It's added uh, a quarantine phase and or a, a couple tests. You can look into the details sometime if you want, but the point is they've added laws that restrict or impede on the right to freely travel between states. This right was recognized in 1868. Paul versus the state of Virginia. Speaking of the 14th amendment, it gives them the right of free ingress into other states and egress from them. It ensures to them in other states, the same freedom possessed by the citizens of those states in the acquisition and enjoyment of property and in the pursuit of happiness. And it secures to them in other states the equal protection of their laws. One of those was ingress and egress between states. And so that is a a fundamental liberty. And again, there's a, you can't, the government can't wave their hands and just be like, hey, this seems like a good idea we think will help and then violate or infringe upon the liberty to travel freely. It needs to demonstrate we really have a compelling interest here and this is narrowly tailored. Uh, there, there's, this actually works and there's not another way to try to accomplish a, a diminishing of the sickness and it's actually the sickness is so serious we have to we have a real compelling interest to try to reduce it um, another freedom we have the right to assemble now this is in the first amendment to the constitution but as I noted earlier just because something's in the first amendment doesn't mean it applies to the relationship between us and our local municipalities like village, county, state, etc. But the 14th Amendment says we have the privileges of the citizens of the United States and we have the liberties of citizens in the United States. And in 1937, there was a case that incorporated the right to assemble via the 14th Amendment. And so it is the case that we today can say we have a First Amendment right, whether it's the federal government passing a law that infringes upon our ability to assemble or the state or, or whatever. As Americans, we have a right to assemble. So this is a fundamental liberty. And again, the governor of New York in this case, or the state of New York, I suppose you could say, needs to show this law is narrowly tailored and we have a real compelling interest here. Um, one of the things that's significant with this is there was a differentiation in New York State, and it continues, by the way, between essential and non-essential gatherings. And one of the things that's quite concerning for a few reasons, but certainly when it comes to this, is uh, when you have a right to assemble, why does New York get to decide whether what you're assembling for is worth it? Uh, That is viewpoint discrimination. And that gets into violating speech or religion, depending on what it is that people are gathering for. For example, in New York, religious public gatherings for worship aren't considered essential gatherings. And that is a violation of the First Amendment, not simply in that we have a right to gather, but they're, they're saying, well, you can assemble for certain things but not other certain things. And and that actually moves beyond assembly to, okay, this is a viewpoint discrimination, which is speech, or this is religious discrimination. Um, And I don't think New York has effectively made a case that COVID-19 is the most serious public health threat we've ever faced in the history of our nation. And even if it were, they haven't demonstrated that these guidelines they're giving are actually effective and necessary, meaning there aren't other ways to encourage the decrease of transmission of COVID-19. So I think it fails the compelling interest and the narrowly tailored tests. Um, Related to where I just got into the essential and non-essential, there's another, uh, the the clause in the 14th Amendment about equal treatment under the law. One of the things we're seeing is this differentiation between essential and non-essential, or we are seeing a a difference in response when certain people or events violate some of these rules as opposed to others. This summer, there were many protests happening around the state. Um, when were the state leaders um, chasing down and giving fines or, or calling on people to be arrested for not social distancing? And and if there, if there is a selective... Um, selective enforcement of a law basically always happens. Uh, if, if it were the case that you couldn't enforce a law, unless you enforced it perfectly evenly, equally, like you punished everyone who broke the law, you'd never, never be able to enforce any law. Cause it's who knows when somebody's breaking a law and just, there's, you know, not local law enforcement there to uh, arrest them. This also allows law enforcement to kind of reserve enforcement enforcement for egregious violation rather than marginal violation. You probably aren't going to get arrested for jaywalking. You know what I mean? Uh, So selective enforcement, it's actually, it's a fact of life and it's been recognized by the court as a thing. However, if selective enforcement can be shown to be tied to viewpoint discrimination, That's now violating uh, a right to free speech and equal protection under the law. And I think it'd be hard to make that case, but one could make the case. Uh, Another thought. The notion of liberty under the 14th Amendment certainly has incorporated, there have been uh, specific rights within the Bill of Rights that have been incorporated into that understanding of liberty, but it also just captures a traditional understanding of what liberty is in the United States. For example, I mentioned the green shirts on June 1st earlier. And if there were like a New York state law that if you went to court on June 1st, you had to wear a green shirt, I think you could probably challenge that just on the there's no rational basis for this law. But if they made a law that you had to wear a green shirt, even if you were in the privacy of your own home or on the property of your own small business, that isn't simply failing the rational basis test that would f- fit under the strict scrutiny because it's 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 a law that's infringing on a the basic notion of personal liberty that we have as Americans when you're in your own home when you're in your own business you can you can wear what you want and and do what you want pretty broadly. Now, occasionally you can't murder people. And that would be a moment where we would say, hey, the government has a compelling interest and a narrowly tailored law to uphold that specific interest of you can't kill other people. Um, But generally speaking, there's robust protection for that kind of liberty. And so one of the problems with the mandates, take masking. If you were required, if, if the mandate in New York State was that you had to wear a mask when you went to court, or when you went to the DMV, or your you know any sort of governmental like place of business so like the police station, the the uh, local municipal building, etc., if if the directive was that you needed to wear a mask there, okay, it passed the rational basis test. We it's connected to COVID 19. Whether COVID 19 really poses a, enough of a problem to be a compelling government, mental interest, or whether it's narrow, narrowly tailored, those aren't questions that are relevant for the rational basis test. But when they say you need to wear a mask in your own place of business, that you, you don't get to decide whether you're going to request people. Um, now, business owners obviously do decide that, but they're potentially subject to fines if they decide in disagreement with the New York State Directive at this point. That is infringing upon basic American notions of liberty, which would be part of the 14th Amendment. So unless the government can establish compelling interest, and a compelling interest in regards to public health that supersede any previously in American history, and can demonstrate that this is actually narrowly tailored and definitely helping and being effective, uh, then it would would violate that part, that aspect of our constitutional liberties on the 14th Amendment. Okay, so here's a big um, final thought as we wrap up these these constitutional questions regarding these directives. You may have noticed as I went through a number of these rights, it's not a slam dunk. You could think, well, somebody could argue maybe that there's a compelling governmental interest here that that even exceeds any previous governmental interests when it comes to public health. You could try to argue that. Um, And they could try to argue, oh, this really is that effective and there are no other ways to, to approach reducing the transmission. So somebody could try to argue that for every one of these rights, the current directives pass the strict scrutiny standard. Personally, I think that all of these fail on compelling interest. And most of them fail on narrowly tailored. Maybe all of them. Let me look through. Right to work, Yep, Fails on both. Right to travel, yeah, fails on both. Right to assemble, fails on both. Equal treatment under the law, I don't know enough. You'd have to find a lot of examples of how people are being treated at various protests. Um, Traditional understanding, yeah, fails on both. Yeah, I, I think pretty clearly this fails on all of them. That said, I don't think it's so obvious that let's just put it this way. I'm not in court right now. If I felt like it was a slam dunk, I would find some lawyers who would take this on promise of victory and payment after the fact. But in this particular moment, uh, I think there's a good chance that you would lose in court. And you would just be caught up for years in legal processes, spending a lot of money, and very possibly lose at the end of the day. So I don't think it's a slam dunk. That said, my take is that these are unconstitutional directives, and it does fail on a number of these rights on both the compelling interest and the narrowly tailored questions. Okay, so moving along to the second question. So that first question I've received from like mul- several people in the past week. They've asked me, hey, you, you've mentioned at times over the past few months that these are unconstitutional directives. What's actually the constitutional case? And uh, so there, there are some of the thoughts. Like I said, though, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. And to the extent that I even am persuaded by these, I don't think they're so obvious that I'd go to court too quickly. Because there's a good chance you'd lose and just lose a lot of money. The next question, it came in a few weeks ago. Sorry, I'm a little delayed on this one. Uh, first off, I really appreciate the podcast. Thanks for taking time to do it. I'd love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on a video that was attached to the email. It's regarding Twitter censorship. Personally, I seem to err on the side of Jack. Jack Dorsey is the, the founder of Twitter. Even if Twitter... Excuse me. I don't know if he's the founder, but he's like the face of Twitter. Even if Twitter does, ha- does have a left-leaning bias, what's the problem with that? Ted Cruz seems to be jeopardizing free market capitalism, something that I thought Republicans stood for. I believe that these free social media platforms should be able to regulate whoever they want. They create policies and their users agree to them when they sign up. At the end of the day, the users don't have to use Twitter. They can go elsewhere. Social media CEOs are never going to make everyone happy. The left thinks they don't delete slash regulate enough, while the right believes they do it too much. Fox News held the slogan, quote, fair and balanced, end quote, up until 2018. Although mostly everyone knows they have a right-wing bias. They have the ability to regulate who, what they want to hear, post. So why can't Twitter? Is this a double standard? Again, thanks for the podcast. Hope to hear your thoughts on the subject in the near future. Well, thank you, listener, for sending this in. I tend to share your position, and I thought it was fitting to have this come after talking about the government directives regarding COVID-19, because I think when you start thinking through uh, the generous and robust liberties that we enjoy as Americans, one starts to see why the government getting involved in controlling who and whether or not Twitter can... Delete tweets or block tweets or remove users, it just starts, it's a gross violation of liberty. Um, I am particularly concerned about Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms and and cancel culture and just the the obvious uh, far left leanings of these various organizations. That concerns me. I am interested in removing myself from the Google ecosystem, man, that's difficult. Uh, Gmail is an amazing platform, Google suite, it, it, they're just such easy to use tools. I, and I've been kind of, uh, man, just like so much of my life over the past couple of decades has been in, involved in deeply using these these platforms and these, these uh, software packages. But I'm really uh, very strongly interested in trying to get away from them because I'm, I'm very concerned. Um, however, I think even more concerning to me than Twitter or Facebook is the government deciding that private entities can't regulate content on their own platforms. Uh, I am a fan of church leadership being able to decide what is spoken from their pulpits and what's posted on their, you know, <laughs> uh, email messaging systems. And like, I'm, I'm a big fan of businesses being able to regulate their own domains, newspapers being able to decide which letters to the editor they post, uh, etc. I'm, I'm a big fan of freedom. And that extends to Twitter. Twitter gets to decide their rules, just like you noted in your question. Everybody who uses Twitter agrees to their terms of service uh, which probably nobody actually reads which you don't have to but you can't then complain when you violate them and Twitter takes something down maybe you disagree with even if it did violate them well guess who decides Twitter um, this is not the this is not a uh, uh, this is not a public entity Twitter is a private entity and I'm a fan of private enti- entities and if if you don't like Twitter like me, then maybe just jump ship on social media generally and if you feel like you need to use some social media well then use it uh, use Twitter use Facebook and just be uncomfortable with aspects of it or feel free to jump onto parlor. me I forget what parlor's URL is there's there's a platform called parlor there's the we me there's there's lots of uh, social media competitors I don't know if any of them will ever Kind of uh, supplant a Twitter or a Facebook, which have massive reach at this point. Of course, if you went back about eighteen years, you know the, the early two thousands, people would have said like nobody will ever supplant MySpace. When is the last time you went to a MySpace profile? Uh, so who knows? Maybe in ten years there'll be like a totally new mover and shaker on the the on the scene. But regardless of that, what what. Um, I'm going to use the word terrifies. I'm not actually terrified. I think all of these things matter and they're significant, but in light of living for Jesus and serving the Lord and the light of eternity, these are all just molehills, not mountains. But in terms of the molehill, <laughs> uh, what, what terrifies me or concerns me a lot more than Twitter being aggressively aggressive in its censorship of certain conservative ideas is the notion that the federal government is going to start regulating private entities and forcing them to or not to post certain kinds of things. Uh, It seems so obvious to me. I think it's one of the, if you listen to my last episode, probably approaching a month ago now, uh, the election issue. One of the things that concerns me about both a Biden or a Trump is their intuition to use government power for things. And in Trump's case, part of that was to use executive orders to try to rein in a Facebook or a Twitter. I'm like, this is not the place of the federal government. And just just because the executive is a little bit personally offended that his post, uh, there was some sort of warning or notification attached to it by Twitter, he can't just turn around and and the next day issue an executive order trying to get back at them. Like that is way more concerning to me than Twitter's actions. So I agree with you. I think I'm a big fan of the free market. I'm a fan of Liberty. And part of what that means is private entities can establish a newspaper or an online forum like Twitter, and they can uh, disallow any user they want. They can kick users. They can filter tweets. And if people don't like it, use a different platform or keep using it. And y- I mean, just cause you use it doesn't mean you have to like it. I think that's also a, a, like bad thinking like, Hey, you're the one using them. You can't complain. Like, no, I can use Twitter and also be concerned and complain about Twitter. Uh, I would encourage you don't live your life just complaining all the time, but certainly if you have valid concerns, feel free to share them, speak up. Maybe you'll even impact Twitter's future decisions. Like it's part of how the free market works. Uh, Twitter will listen to their users. Uh, That could be good. That could be bad depending on who the users are that it's listening to. Hey, if if you want to stick with Twitter, try to make it a better place. If you feel you need to jump ship, but strong arming a private entity with the, really just the, what it is, is this, there is this bullying instinct in us. And when people do things we don't think they should be doing, rather than just saying, I'm not going to do that. Or maybe I'm not even going to associate with the person who does that. We think I got to use the, the almost like a semi tyrannical hand of government to force them to do the things I think they should do. And I'm just not particularly comfortable with that I don't think it's a healthy instinct. I think it's a bullying instinct. I have the same instinct in me. Like, I'm a sinner too, but I recognize what it is, and I'm not particularly interested in bullies using the power of government to tell other people what to do. Um, there certainly is a place for government, but it's really easy for government to to go beyond its healthy scope, and that's why our constitutional liberties are so important. It's why it's so important to have a, a court... A judicial system that will hold in check even legislative processes that go too far and say, hey, you've got to demonstrate compelling interest. You've got to prove that this was narrowly tailored, that it was actually effective, and there was no other way to go about doing this. Like, I'm a big fan of those processes because the tendency of government is just to, hey, I think something's good, so I'm going to do it, and I'm going to use the government to do this. Uh, Hey, if you don't like Twitter... Feel free to not use them. Feel free to start a competitor. Feel free to use Twitter and lobby Twitter to change. But don't try to use the federal government to bully them into being the company you would wish them to be. Okay, that's my hot take on social media and the government trying to control them. What I do want to end on is this. We really, even in the midst of this moment with some uh, genuine concerns about our constitutional liberties, we live in an amazingly free country with powerful institutions that are actively working to, like the court, that actively work, and I would say generally successfully, to protect our freedoms and liberties. And and even actually over the course of the past century, I would say that that has improved. We are in an arc of improvement. Uh, our, our liberties are better protected today than they were 100 years ago. And I'm very thankful for that. I don't want uh, to just stop there and rest on that, but I am thankful for that. I think we have a lot to be thankful for. Oh, and I wasn't even trying to do this, but this is Thanksgiving week. It's, it's always good to be thankful, but definitely this, this Thanksgiving, it's a little odd. I'm not sure what you and yours are doing, but be blessed, give thanks to the Lord, encourage some people around you, and let's try to think well about the Constitution, about liberty, and things like that. Be blessed. Peace.